0: I want to take you back to a time long, long ago when I was a child and great theologians ruled the airwaves. 1981, the theologians Steve Perry, Jonathan Cain, and Neil Schoen released the lyrics that said, Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. Well, I don't know if that that song has ever inspired you, it's inspired many people. It's a classic. And uh, people can't get over it. Don't stop believing. Right? You just can't help but sing along. You can't help but have a smile on your face when you hear it. They, you know, lightning struck in that moment when that song and the words and the music all came together to create that masterpiece of theology. Um, actually, that masterpiece of theology is essentially what this message is all about. That phrase, "Don't stop believing," I, I almost made that the title of the message, but I tried to, I, I, I avoided that and I went with something a little more. Um, well, I don't know, a little more preachy, maybe? From fear to faith. The, the issue is that we encounter things all the time that, that in our lives will derail our faith. They will keep us from believing. We will, we'll get to a point in our lives where we'll go, okay, I have believed up until this point, but no more. I can't go on. It's, it's not worth it anymore. Or the circumstances of my life are such that what good does faith do in this situation? So, I want us to encourage, or I want to encourage us all today not to stop believing. And to take this journey, if we will, think of it as a journey from fear to faith. Let's look at Mark chapter 5, and I'm going to back us all the way up to verse 21. We did read this passage last week, but I want to to read that again. I want us to see that again in context of where we're going to focus in our attention in this uh, part of Mark chapter 5, so we're going to read at verse 21, and then as we do so and as we go along in our journey through the message today, I hope that you'll discover some encouragement for yourself on how you can go from fear to faith, and you see how that is in this passage today. So, Mark chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading at verse 21, and would you stand with me in honor of God's Word today one more time as I read this aloud? And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and sleeping or weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this message. And I pray that whatever we hear today will speak to our hearts, encourage us, teach us what you would have us to to learn. And God, that we will be walking in obedience to it as we go out of here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Is the story we uh, we see <clears throat> we see the story of Jairus? We see the woman who had the bleeding. We could we looked at her last week in, in depth and uh, we could call her the unclean woman she has this bleeding that makes her unclean ceremonially ceremonially religiously unclean and how she received healing the compassion of Jesus was 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 manifested there and was poured out on her and she received healing and salvation and wholeness right and she went in peace and and then we return back to in verse 35 we turn back to J Iris in this situation and if you're following the story um, and and you're reading this or you're hearing this for the first time and some of us are so familiar with these stories I, I have to admit that i've read this story many many times and it can become so familiar that we miss the impact of the narrative here is Jesus coming back, back to the other side of the sea, and He's likely in Capernaum, and the synagogue there was a very important synagogue, and Jesus had done ministry there. And here comes a ruler of the synagogue, it's Jairus, and He invites him, Jesus, I implore you, I beg you, He's, he's bowing before Him, kneeling before Him at His feet, come and save my daughter, she's at the point of death. And Jesus says, okay, I'll go with you. And He went, but what happens next? Crowds are thronging about Jesus. And then, there's this woman introduced. And she's sneaking up behind Jesus. She's an unclean woman. She has faith to be healed. She believes Jesus can heal her. She has seen His compassion. She's seen evidence of His greatness. And all of this stuff is good. And we think, oh, isn't this wonderful? But what about Jairus? What about the girl? Why are you waiting? The girl is at the point of death, Jesus. Why are you letting the crowds slow you down? Why are you searching around the crowds for, for somebody who touched your garments? Why are you delaying? And the results of that delay are there right in front of us. They, just, they should smack us in the face in verse 35. While He was still speaking, while He was still saying to the woman, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. There arrive members of his family or his household. Some who said, Hey, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? What's the point? Do you can you can you feel the impact that that might have? Have you ever experienced a delay? (laughs) Have you ever been in a situation where this happened, then that happened, then that happened, and we didn't get to where we needed to be and we missed something important? Maybe a plane flight, I don't know, maybe a Maybe traffic backs up and you miss an appointment. You don't get to work on time. You know, those are all the simple things. But what if that delay meant the death of your child? Because that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. What would you do? How would you feel? I looked at this story and I see this this dichotomy between these two characters. On one hand, Jairus is introduced to us, the ruler of the synagogue, one of the rulers of the synagogue, a very important person. He was well respected. When people saw him come and go, they said, that's... That's one of the rulers of the synagogue. Make way. <laughs> you know, let him pass. Oh, hey, please, have, have a seat. Here, um, let's give you the best seat in the restaurant or, you know, uh, whatever it might be. Here, take the seat of honor at the banquet. You understand? You, you see you see, what's, see the kind of person this was? That's all wrapped up in, in, in how people would have seen him, how this, this would have affected the crowds, Here's If there's anybody who deserves Jesus' attention, it's Jairus. If, if there's anyone who deserves a miracle, it's Jairus. If, if there's anyone who deserves to be ignored, it's the unclean woman. The dichotomy between the two should strike us one who deserves everything, one who, in the, her uncleanness, in her cultural setting, didn't deserve attention, didn't deserve the time that was given her. Now we all know, we, we all we all see there, we see how Jesus' compassion overcomes those cultural stigmas, right? Now, we, we we connect with that and we're we're good with that. But do we also see how Jairus is coming to Jesus. May even have a sense or have a tinge of entitlement. Maybe deserving. Interestingly, we don't hear Jairus speak again in this story. We heard him come to Jesus falling at his feet, begging him, my little daughter is at the point of death, come and lay your hand on her so that she may be made well and live. But we don't hear from him again. What was going on in his heart? I don't want to speculate, but I do know this, that entitlement is an enemy of faith. Entitlement is, is an enemy of faith you may uh, you probably have experienced that like i have guaranteed you've experienced it, or i've experienced it and you probably have as well that you think you deserve something some some recognition some uh, acknowledgment that, God, you, you, why aren't you paying attention to me? I've been doing all of these things. We may feel like the elder son in the story of Luke chapter 15, where Jesus says, here's a man with two sons, and his one took the inheritance and squandered it, and the other one stayed home and worked. And, and that elder son says, Father, all these years I have slaved for you. I have been your loss. your slave. And you've never once even given me a small, a young goat to have a party with my friends. Sacrifice that and have, a, have an awesome little meal with my friends. Never once. What have you done for me, Father? We may feel like that. We all feel like that. And it is an enemy of faith. It keeps us from belief. It keeps us from putting our faith in Him. I thought about that. I I see that in the story. It's very clear there. But I thought, well, how does entitlement exactly, how is entitlement exactly an enemy of faith? Well, if we believe we're entitled to something and we don't get it, what's the point of faith? Right? If we believe we should get something in this life, if we are owed something that we have a right to good things and we don't get them, then what's the point of believing in a God who gives good things? Well, here's the thing. James 1 verse 17 says, Every good thing and every perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights. Every good thing that we have, every, every right thing that we have is from God. So, the, the truth is that all that we have, every good that we have, the breath that we have taken. I was reading a little bit of Jonathan Edwards this past week and marveling at the grace of God in our lives. And he told his congregation, he said, The fact that you woke up this morning with breath in your lungs is a grace from God. And that's true for every one of us. The fact that we are just breathing in and out every day and that you are all right here today is a grace from God. And it's not. It, it, it. And what I mean by grace is that it's not something we deserve, we don't deserve life. We don't deserve the good that we have. We don't deserve our families. We don't deserve a good, a, a good church family to worship with. We don't deserve the homes that we live in and the cars that we drive and the jobs that we have. None of that is deserving. None of that is owed to us. Yet we live in a culture, in a world, where the right of the individual, the right to certain things, is, is the prime value that we have. Maybe it started out with good intent in the Declaration of Independence when, we said, when they said that we believe all people are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among them is the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, right? Or the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Some of you scholars can correct me later. That we believe we have certain unalienable rights. And the the list of those rights have grown. We keep adding to them. I have a right to good feelings. I have a right to safe places. I have a right to have the government do what I want it to do for me. On and on and on it goes. And we carry those rights into our relationships. And we carry those rights into the throne room of God and say, "God, I deserve this. I have the right to this. Don't you know I'm an American, God?" We have no right but to be judged by a holy and righteous God who always does what is good and right and perfect. That is what that is what is due to us. Yet we sit here today with breath in our lungs because God has given us grace. So what's the answer to this entitlement? Well, Jesus says, Do not fear, only believe. And what he's, the way he says that is, Keep on believing. Or, to put it negatively, Don't stop believing you started out well in this you began with faith you 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 came to me you implored me you begged me you did exactly the right thing and now your circumstances have changed now what are you going to do are you going to continue in faith are you going to believe this world is full of things that are fearful this, this world that we are in, death is around the, every corner. We're going to experience it. We're going to experience heartache. We're going to experience sickness. We're going to experience depression and anxiety. We're going to experience death as tragic as it is. We're going to experience all of those things. I was reminded as I was meditating on this, some of the phrases from this, this old hymn of Martin Luther came through my mind. When he, he penned the words that we sing, a mighty fortress is our God, and he said, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph Through us, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The next verse is even more powerful in my mind. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to him abideth, to them, excuse me, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. See, Martin Luther and and every Christian for the last 2,000 years who has put their faith and trust in Jesus, has come to know the truth that, that this this life, this world, is not ultimate. His kingdom endures forever. Yes, absolutely. Death is not the end. It is not the end. We, then, with humility come before God. Humility which defeats Fear, humility in saying, God, I don't know the future. I don't know how this is all going to work out. Yes, God, I have done all of these things, but they are nothing before you. I have no rights before you, God. I am just humbly before you. And whatever you grant me, you grant me. I will not stop believing. I will continue in faith. And we will do what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. 1 and 2, excuse me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Keeping our eyes or looking to Jesus, the founder of, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before us endured the cross, scorning or despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in majesty. We, we are called to look to Him. That's humility. That's what defeats our fear when we humble ourselves and say, none of this other stuff that I have done really matters in the face of a holy and righteous God who I am dependent on for everything. And He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He started it. We continue to to look to Him because He will perfect our faith. And He will bring us into His eternal kingdom. That strikes at the entitlement. The entitlement that we as some readers may look at that and go, well, why isn't He getting something out of this? Why, isn't, why, why did Jesus delay? Why is Jesus delaying in my life? When I have been doing all of these things for Him and serving Him in this way or that way. Jesus is saying to us as well, do not fear, only believe would like to take us from fear to belief. Well, he goes on. Look look how the journey um, continued, this journey from fear to faith. Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. And then he allowed no one to follow him, it says except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. This is an interesting pattern that we see in the Gospels. We see it here. Jesus takes his, his kind of top three disciples and he singles them out and he says, you guys are coming with me. Now, maybe there was space problems. Maybe there just wasn't enough room in the, in the room. And so he, he just had to limit it. But I think there was more involved there because later on in the story, when they're up on the mountainside, which seems to me there would be plenty of space for all 12 disciples, Jesus only took three disciples with him, the same three and show them his glory, his transformed, transfixed glory. Here, he's taking them along, and he comes to the house, and what do we, what do we see there? A commotion. <laughs> Some translations might translate this as a racket. You know, it, it's what is going on here, you know? People, it says, people weeping and wailing loudly. What was going on here? So, a little bit of a culture lesson is that at this time, especially in the Jewish culture of the early, um, you know, the first century, um, the tradition was that when a death occurred in the family, um, you would honor that that dead person, you would honor your loved one by hiring trained musicians and singers to come and mourn. it, it may be comparable to what we do when we hold a funeral service or a memorial service, and and we might bring in, we might rent out a place, and we we're going to pay, you know, the funeral home, and they're going to we're going to pay for all of these services, and the more money we spend, maybe the more people we gather together, the larger the venue, you know, obviously the more honor we're trying to to give to the person, and so here's the the, the ruler of the synagogue, and he's got mourners and weepers, people there that are trained and paid to wail loudly in memory of the dead person. And that's what's going on here. And Jesus, what does He say? He enters the building or enters the home and He sees all this going on and He hears all this and He says, why are you making a commotion? Why are you raising a ruckus? The child is not dead but sleeping. And what do they do? And they laughed at him. Huh. Interesting. What what why would they laugh at Jesus for that? Don't they know who Jesus is? Don't they know what he can do? Oh, oh sure. Jesus can do amazing things. Oh yes, Jesus loves people. He has compassion on them. Well, Okay, sure, we've seen that. We've heard the stories. We've even heard Him say some pretty profound things. But we know what happens to a person when they die. They're dead. They're not coming back. And Luke, in his Gospel, Luke chapter 8, I think it's verse 53, makes this point very clear. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. She was dead. They knew that. They had full knowledge. They knew that that was the way it was. Don't believe the skeptics who claim greater knowledge and say, well, people in the first century, uh, they were kind of confused about about death. and, And they believed all kinds of hokey things about people coming back from the dead. No, people knew that when you died, you died. Everybody's known that. Every culture knows that. Every time in history knows that. When someone rises from the dead, that's not normal. So, they're laughing. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you've experienced this with a family member. Maybe your child, I don't know, says, Hey, Dad, Mom, check this out. See, look what I can do. Um, or they tell you, hey, did you know I can such and such? And you go, oh yeah, right. Ha ha. I don't know if you've watched, uh, we were watching some kind of magician show recently, but you know when a magician says, hey, I'm going to pull a rabbit out of the hat. Well, that's, that's been done before. But when they tell you they're going to do something, you go, yeah, right. Right. They laughed at him. In fact, there, it was scornful Laughter. You're full of it, Jesus. You have no clue. She's dead. That stuff just doesn't happen. Well, so Jesus says, get out of here. (laughs) The very next phrase is, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Well, Jesus knew something that nobody else knew. Did he not? Do you see that in the story? He knew something. He had knowledge that they didn't have. Their knowledge, in fact, <laughs> their knowledge, and our knowledge, is an enemy of faith. Knowledge can be an enemy. Now, I want to qualify this a little bit. Knowledge is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. In fact, I, I one of my strengths is strengths finders. Some of you guys have done this strengths finder test. It's input. I love learning things. I love knowing new things. Okay, so knowledge in itself is not a bad thing, but knowledge can certainly be an enemy of faith because when we know things are a certain way, we won't believe Jesus for that. We won't believe God for that. God says, "Here, I want you to go do that," and we'll say, "No way, that's crazy." We watched, um, last night we watched the, this older movie, about, I don't know, 12 years old, called Evan Almighty, where God comes to a man named Evan Baxter and tells him to build an ark in his yard, in his neighborhood, and what does he do? He's like, well, God told me to do that. He, he fought against it. He pushed back against it. This is just not what people do. God doesn't appear to people like this. Um, floods don't happen like they used to be. This is crazy. Now, of course, it's, it's a movie, but doesn't it teach us something? When God asks us to do something even small and we think, oh, that's crazy. Like, go talk to that person. No, no, that's crazy. I, I'll look like an idiot if I, if I talk to them and ask them about their day and introduce myself and maybe look for an opportunity to, to share the gospel with them. No, no, no. Or I have a family member or, or, or somebody that we're asked to, yeah, here, bless them in a certain way. Or, here, take some of your money and use it like this. Oh, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense because... I've got bills to pay. There's, there's knowledge that prevents us from every day obeying God, putting faith in God. It really is an enemy of faith. And what is it? Uh, what, what is it that's, what, how is knowledge related to fear? Well, it's really the fear of the unknown, it's the fear of ignorance. We don't want to to not know something that we should know. We want to know everything. And if it is unknown to us, our fear keeps us from going there. We don't know what's in that cave, so we won't go there. We don't know what's on the other side of that hill, so we're going to stay here, thank you very much. The unknown strikes us with fear. However... What did Jesus say? The child is not dead, but sleeping. He, he's not saying, look, you're wrong. She wasn't really dead. She's just gone into a, a, a comatose state. That's not what he's saying. He's using sleep as a, as a euphemism for death. And, and the reason why sleep was used as a euphemism for death For Jesus and then later on for the early Christians when Paul writes in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 he says I don't want you to, to grieve as those who have no hope when somebody falls asleep in Christ and that's the term that he's using he's talking about people who have fallen asleep I don't want you to be ignorant of those who fall asleep because what does it mean to be a Christian it means that death is not the end Death is only a pathway into life. So when Jesus, when this man was saying, I want her to be made well and live, that's the the cry of all of our hearts, for all of us. We want that. We want that for ourselves. And Jesus can do that. Death is not the end. Death is only a, a type of sleep from which we will awake into His presence presence of God and the presence of our our Savior and our Lord Jesus. Accepting the unknown defeats faith. Accepting the unknown defeats faith. Our, Our knowledge is limited. We don't know what we don't know. But Jesus knows it. We have to trust that He knows what's next. He knows the future. He knows what we don't know. And so, that fear can be defeated when we accept that He knows it, that He controls the future. He knows what we don't. In fact, we can look, like, look at death like the psalmist does. In Psalm 30, he says this, Sing praises. To the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Do you hear that? Weeping may tarry for the night. Oh, yes, yes, there is a time in which... Weeping is appropriate, and mourning is appropriate. Yes, we mourn. Yes, we weep. But God wants to turn that mourning in, or that mourning, m o u r n i n g, to mourning, m o r n i n g. Right? He wants to turn that weeping into joy. That night into the light of the morning. He wants it to be like when we're a child and we come to our parents and we're crying because we bumped our knee on something, we scraped it and we're hurt and we're, we're just so distraught and the world is caving in around us. Right? And, the, and then a good father will come. Oh, what is it? What, what's wrong? What, what hurts? Why are you crying? And we go, oh, no, let me fix it for you. And we kiss the boo-boo. And what, is our, what does our child do? Our girls did this. Oh, thank you. Feels better. <laughs> now they're happy and they're laughing. Oh, that tickles, Daddy. Oh. And they run away joyful we'll get we'll get to childlike faith later but for but do you see do you see how this this life that we are are dealing with these 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 afflictions that we we are are challenged with day after day the death that is around us the, the valley of the shadow of death if i can use that phrase from psalm 23 all of these things cannot compare to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the eternal weight of glory that is waiting for all of those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, joy comes in the morning. These three stories, taken together in chapter 5, the the story of the, the, the unclean man with an unclean spirit, the demoniac, the, the story of the unclean woman with an unclean disease who is healed and is made whole and and is saved by her faith. And then the story of the synagogue ruler. That's really where the focus is, the synagogue ruler. Will the synagogue ruler, will people like that, Will pe- will real religious people, will real good people have faith in Jesus? Or will they just simply continue to trust in their entitlement and in their knowledge of what they have done? These stories teach us something about Jesus, right? We have seen Him with His power and His authority. We have seen Him with His compassion. We have seen Him now as Lord over death because He comes and He says, Talitha kumi, child, girl, Rise. Arise and be made whole and come to life. And she got up and began walking. And, and the connection there is that she was 12 years of age and the woman with the bleeding had her disease for 12 years as well. And I think we're meant to see a connection there between the two. And they were overcome with amazement. Their fear is gone. Their faith in Jesus is secure. And now they're amazed by what they have seen. Right? These stories are about Jesus and all that He has done and all that He can do. And they're stories about discipleship. About what it means to follow Him. Because that's what Mark is getting at. He's saying, this is the Gospel, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And He wants us to know about this Jesus and what it means to follow Him. What it means to to go after Him. He wants us to know something about discipleship and that it requires faith. It requires trusting in Him in any and every circumstance. It's a journey. This is the, the journey from fear to faith. It's the journey of a disciple following Jesus in every circumstance. That's what He wants from us. That's what Mark wanted for his readers and, and Peter as he's preaching this gospel in Rome and Mark is recording it to be given to the church. This, this, these stories have so many contrasting characters, don't they? But the need of every single one of them, the, need, the great need that they all have is to put their faith in Jesus. That's what they need. And the woman of all people is the example for the others to follow. He's the example for Jairus. He's the example for the weepers and the mourners, the the trained and the paid wailers. He's the example for the three disciples. He's the example for the rest of the family and the household. You come to Jesus desperate for Him. Recognizing your humble state. Recognizing that there is nothing that entitles you to any measure of mercy and grace. It means a radical faith expressed in Jesus that despite all evidence to the contrary, we will trust Him in this circumstance. Death is all around us, but we put our faith in Jesus, the only one who can do anything about it. Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus who is the Christ. This this Jesus has done for us what no other person could. This Jesus has taken taken on the oppression of the enemy. This Jesus has taken on the infirmities, the disease, the torment, the scourging and the whips. This Jesus has faced death and overcome. Reminds me of a story, of a, sh- a short story told a f- few years ago and you've probably heard it before, but I think it's worth being reminded of. The story is told from the point of view of the narrator who said, I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange like nothing my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child, hush now and I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn one Friday morning, I noticed a young man handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear, tenor voice, Rags! Ah, the air was foul and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags! New rags for old! I take your tired rags! Rags! Now this is a wonder. I thought to myself, for the man stood six foot, four, and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a ragman in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped the cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me your rag, he said so gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face and then he began to weep, to sob so grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself. And I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from a mystery. Rags! Rags! New rags for old! In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow, it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work? he asked a man who leaned against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? "'Are you crazy?' sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat, the cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. "'So,' said the ragman, "'give me your jacket, and I'll give you mine.' Such quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket. So did the ragman. And I trembled at what I saw." for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk, lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man, hunched, wizened, sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old and sick and yet he went with terrible speed on spider's legs. He skidded through the alleys of the city this mile and the next until he came to its limits and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow and yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste perhaps to know what drove him so the little old ragman he came to a landfill he came to the garbage pits and when i then i wanted to help him and what i did but i hung back hiding he climbed a hill with tormented labor he cleared a little space on that hill then he sighed he lay down he pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket he covered his bones with an army blanket and he died Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know how could I know that I slept through Friday night and Saturday, and it's night too, but then. On Sunday morning, I was wakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light, slammed against my sour face, and I blinked and I looked and I saw the last and the first wonder of all. There was the rag man, folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead but alive, and besides that, healthy. There were no signs of sorrow nor of age, and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all my clothes in that place and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. He dressed me, my Lord. He put new rags on me and I am a wonder beside him. The Ragman, the Ragman, the Christ.